welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking to Chris Lamb about inflammatory bowel disease. In this podcast episode, we'll be mostly focusing on ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, two hugely important conditions which we know are increasing in incidence across the UK. They are lifelong gastrointestinal conditions and they can have a significant impact on patients' lives. And so it's really important that we as GPs know when to suspect, how to investigate, who to refer and how urgently, and how to manage these patients and support them longer term. I hope that by the end of this podcast episode, you'll have picked up some really helpful key pointers from Chris about how to do those things. Just two quick disclaimers to begin with. Firstly, this is designed for healthcare professionals. Um, And secondly, this episode and this podcast series is designed for educational purposes and is not designed to replace clinical judgment or clinical guidelines. In the show notes for this episode, I will put Chris Lamb's BSG article, which outlines how to diagnose and manage patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which is a really useful article. So do have a look at that and look at some of the relevant sections for primary care. So Chris, could you introduce yourself to us, please? Thanks, Charlie. I'm Chris Lamb. I'm a gastroenterologist based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and also an academic based at Newcastle University. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Um, It's fantastic to have you talking to us today. I know that you, several years ago, you wrote the guidance for the BSG on inflammatory bowel disease. You really are a, a wealth of knowledge on the subject, so I'm really looking forward to exploring IBD more with you. Um, we're going to cover three broad areas. Obviously, inflammatory bowel disease is a massive topic, and um, we could talk for many hours on this. So um, I thought we'd look at diagnosis and we pick out a few key points that are relevant um, and that might help our listeners. We could talk briefly about the management of inflammatory bowel disease flares. Um, Just a quick note on that. We're going to have another episode covering that whole topic. So we'll just see what Chris thinks are the key take home points to help us better manage flares. And then we're going to finish off with some chronic disease management, some pointers that we should be aware of, thinking about things like cancer surveillance and follow up of um, patients with IBD. So that's what we're going to roughly cover today. Um, But just to start with, Inflammatory bowels is absolutely fascinating um, and the prevalence is doing all sorts of interesting things. So maybe you could give us a quick overview of inflammatory bowel disease, how common it is and, you know, where our understanding is of it now. Yes, absolutely. So, um, I mean, just to say thank you for the invite to come and talk today. It is a fascinating subject. And the thing that I've always found really interesting about IPD is, is how different it is for different people. And that's why you have to tailor your management to individuals. And that's a, a real take home message from today. Whilst the inflammation that you see can vary from individual to, to individual, so can the symptoms. And I think we always have to consider each patient individually and holistically. And that's never been more important because we now know that the prevalence is increasing and has been increasing for many years. I think if you go back 10, 15 years and look in literature, you would see that the prevalence of IBD was said to be around 0.4% of the population. But there's been a couple of really big studies uh, in recent years um, from South England and also from Scotland 
which have shown that that prevalence figure is probably somewhere near 0.8% and is increasing year on year to the point where we expect that 1% of the UK population will be affected by IBD by the end of this decade. And that means that as healthcare professionals, we will encounter people with IBD on a regular basis. And also in our personal lives, we are likely to know people with IBD and it's therefore really important to understand this. I think another really important thing to realize about IBD is that the symptoms that we focus on as healthcare professionals are often around diarrhea, how many times you go to the toilet in a day, presence or absence of rectal bleeding, abdominal pain. And of course, these are really, really important symptoms. But we also have to think about the other symptoms that patients have, things like fatigue, the impact on sleep, concentration, and crucially, how that then affects people's lives, their day to day lives, their family lives, their hobbies, their work lives. So it's a real pleasure to come and chat to you about all this today. Oh, thank you. I and, you know, reflecting on your final point there, I think it is it does have a huge impact on people's lives. We have to think that this is a long term disease. It starts often, you know, when you're a teenager and, and will go throughout the entire life. And there's lots of things to think about here in terms of fertility and, and all sorts. And um, yeah, I, I think it does have a huge impact on people. And when you meet people with it, they, they do say how hard it is to plan ahead because you never quite know how your disease is going to behave and whether it will impact on what you're doing. So I think that is really important. For us as GPs, we are often the first port of call for people coming in with, for example, diarrhea, rectal bleeding. And actually, a lot of what we do now is on the telephone. So we do an awful lot of telephone triage. Um, I spoke to Ramesh in a previous episode who talked about chronic diarrhea and a general approach to patients with chronic diarrhea. I'd just like to go through some pointers that you might have in the telephone triage of a patient with some of these symptoms that might make you think about inflammatory bowel disease. Absolutely. So <clears throat> there's lots of different things to consider. I mean, I think first and foremost, and you as GPs are extremely good at this, and I don't need to teach you, but obviously there are certain features which need to be referred in urgently irrespective of whether it's IBD so you know the the, the patient with new onset rectal bleeding um, who's got weight loss iron deficiency anemia these kind of things need to be referred irrespective of whether you think the patient has IBD but I guess some of the kind of common clinical features to think about the discriminating features to think about in your history is I guess first of all chronicity of symptoms you know if someone's had two, three, four days of diarrhea, particularly if they've also got contacts in the house who have vomiting and diarrhea, then it may well be an infective cause rather than inflammatory bowel disease. Of course, it's possible that someone can present acutely with really very severe IBD um, and the symptoms obviously have to start, start somewhere. But classically, patients will present with more indolent symptoms, which have perhaps been coming on over the course of, of weeks and sometimes months. So do you think about asking that um, I think often a condition that people will also be thinking about is, is irritable bowel syndrome. So how do you kind of distinguish between IBS uh, and, and IBD? Both can have abdominal cramps, both can have diarrhea. Um, clearly, you would not expect to find rectal bleeding in someone with IBS. Um, I think a really important question is to, is to ask around um, things like incontinence. You know, these, these are often symptoms that patients won't. Um, offer uh, because of you know clearly these can be very sensitive questions um, but it's important to ask about I think I think a very useful question in discriminating between uh, IBS and IBD is nocturnal symptoms so it's very uncommon I think for people with IBS to be woken up during the night with the need to defecate um, but IBD patients with active inflammation 
will often report that they're woken up from sleep to to go and uh, and evacuate their their bowels. Um, think about you know other you know important parts of the history for us are things like you know a smoking history. It's very interesting that um, smoking is a, a risk factor for Crohn's disease. Smoking also seems to be in some way protective for ulcerative colitis, and it's not uncommon for us to elicit a history of someone who's recently stopped smoking in perhaps the last few months, the last couple of years when they present with UC, which is is really interesting. That's potentially a personal but also passive history. Um, something we also ask about, obviously, is a history of uh, IBD within the family. Um, technically, uh, the risk of, of uh, IBD in the first degree relative of someone with IBD is still pretty small. It's about 3%. And we've just talked about the fact that the background population have a roughly 1% chance of developing IBD. But we certainly do see a number of people where there will be a stronger family history than that. Um, you know, several siblings, maybe a cousin or an aunt or um, you know, a parent who's affected by IBD. So do do definitely ask about that. Um, and I think another thing to ask about is um, or consider is the presence of, of other inflammatory conditions, whether they're extraintestinal manifestations, um, whether they're um, not necessarily directly related to IBD, but may signify that someone has a history of multiple immune um, uh, disorders. So the kind of things we might think about would be, you know, liver disease, uh, PSC or autoimmune hepatitis, uh, someone who may have a history of uveitis or iritis in the past. Um, you know, think about people who have uh, inflammatory joint disease. Um, think about people who have, maybe have um, skin disorders like eczema or psoriasis. And this is becoming increasingly common now to the point where um, my colleagues and I in, in Newcastle actually now run clinics with um, dermatologists and rheumatologists jointly so that we can consider um, the various treatment options and the impact on quality of life of these different conditions and in individual patients. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, loads of really useful information there. Um, you touched on differentiating inflammatory bowel disease from irritable bowel syndrome. Um, that's obviously a huge part of, of what we need to do once we've ruled out red flags and, uh, and, and we're starting to try to narrow down our differential. Um, Fecal calprotectin has a really big role in helping us to do that. I think it'd be really helpful to go through how best to use fecal calprotectin in practice. Absolutely. So I guess the first place to start with that is what is fecal calprotectin? So calprotectin is a, a protein which is present in the cytoplasm of inflammatory cells. So you find it in neutrophils and macrophages, for example. Um, and the, the gut is fascinating. So it contains a huge number of white blood cells during health. It's one of the, uh, the largest immune organs we have in our body. But when we have inflammatory bowel disease, the number of these inflammatory cells increases within the intestine. Um, and naturally, the lining of the gut turns over and changes and replaces itself very regularly every few days. But that um, uh, shedding of cells is increased in IBD. Really interestingly, the stool forms a, a buffer for these proteins. And so you can quantify calprotectin within the feces and it tells you non-invasively um, if there is a degree of inflammation happening inside the, the intestine. It's not a perfect test, but it is a very useful test. Uh, things to be aware of with calprotectin is that it is not specific for inflammatory bowel disease. So a positive calprotectin can signify inflammation, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's IBD. Um, but a negative calprotectin can be really helpful in someone who has particularly active symptoms. So in someone that you see in, in primary care who has very active symptoms of diarrhea, abdominal pain, 
as a negative calprotectin, you think they have IBS, that's a really, really helpful test as a, as a negative predictive value. But you always have to interpret calprotectin with your clinical judgment and your degree of suspicion um, of inflammatory bowel disease. The other area that we use calprotectin in secondary care is to monitor the, the progress of someone with IBD. Um, and here patients act as their own controls. So if you have someone who has a calprotectin in the thousands, and then you initiate an intervention and the calprotectin you know, goes back down into the 200 range, then you can see there's been a difference. So I guess key things to be aware of is, is other reasons why calprotectin may be elevated. Um, it may be elevated in the context of an infective diarrhea. Um, it may also be elevated in the context of non-steroidals. So be very aware of the fact that ibuprofen, diclofenac, naproxen can all cause GI inflammation. Uh, and falsely elevate the calprotectin. And so ideally, um, you want to try and stop these drugs for a period of time, perhaps even up to six weeks um, before testing calprotectin. But clearly, if you have someone who you're suspicious of IBD, you don't want to be waiting for six weeks to do that test. But it's just to be aware that, that things like NSAIDs can um, increase that risk. It will also be increased in the context of someone who has rectal bleeding. But I would strongly urge you, if you have someone who's presenting with rectal bleeding, they need to be investigated anyway, and therefore calprotectin isn't an appropriate test in that circumstance. So those are the kind of things to be aware of. But I think in the correct context where you have a negative calprotectin, um, you know, it can be very, very helpful. This is probably a slightly unfair question, but what, what is a negative fecal calprotectin? What's a positive fecal calprotectin? Yes, I think we I think we understand this better now than, than we used to, and I think our thresholds have changed. So I think a calprotectin of less than 100 micrograms per gram is actually very reassuring. Uh, and my understanding is that there is data to, to suggest a negative predictive value there can be you know, in the very high 90s. Um, I think your calprotectin above uh, 100, I would say is positive when you're screening for IBD. Um, interestingly, a calprotectin in the 100 to 200 range in someone with IBD is often uh, you know, our, one of our target ranges for therapy. But when you're screening someone in primary care who has symptoms, above 100 is positive. Um, there are many pathways which will vary around the country, and I would encourage you to look at your local pathways, and, and if there isn't one, develop one um, with your, your local teams. Um, but I think a, a calprotectin in the 100 to 250 range, um, many people would say is intermediate. If you suspect someone has IBD, you should refer them in that range. Um, uh, if you're not too sure and you think it's IBS, you could consider repeating the calprotectin six weeks later, for example. This is where your pretest probability and your uh, uh, you know, level of suspicion is really, really important. I would say if you think someone's got IBD, if they've got iritis, a family history of Crohn's disease, and they've got a calprotectin of 150, they should be referred. But clearly, if this is someone who you really don't think has uh, IBD, they fulfill, they fulfill the criteria for IBS and the calprotectin is 125, perhaps you could repeat that again in a few weeks' time. Once it's above 250, that's that's more strongly positive. Um, and I think you know you need to be thinking of referring that patient on your, your local IBD pathway at that stage. We would all support that. Um, Calprotectin is logarithmically distributed. And so once it goes above that kind of 200, 250, 300 threshold, it can become very, very high very quickly. Uh, so, so we often see calprotectins in the thousands. Okay. So lots of value in a, in a patient where you think they've got IBS and you've got a fecal calprotectin less than 100 gives you that confidence to really go for it with the IBS management? Unless you I think so, provided you... 
exactly i think i think you you use your your clinical skills and you think yes this patient has ibs this is but i just want to be sure i think a, mm-hmm. a, a calculation less than 100 in that circumstance is very very helpful i guess one other thing to be aware of is that um calprotectin is not a test for cancer and so if you if there's a possibility that someone has a malignancy driving their symptoms then calprotectin isn't an appropriate test uh, and that patient needs screening with fit or referral on an appropriate pathway and because of that again um, age thresholds for the use of calprotectin will vary around the country. We adopted a conservative approach with the national guidelines for the British Society of Gastroenterology um, and use uh, calprotectin in the, the, the 40 and under age group, because once you go above the age of 40, um, the, the risk of uh, cancer starts to increase. And so we really felt in, in that circumstance, new symptoms need to be investigated and it would be um, less appropriate uh, to make a diagnosis of IBS without being sure that you weren't missing something neoplastic underlying that. Okay. Now, can we just talk a little bit about referral? Okay, so at the moment, we know that there are long waits for being seen by gastroenterology. I think that there are some there's some standards set to try to aim to see people with possible gap, inflammatory bowel disease within a certain time. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think I think what we we really want to get to is is trying to see patients who are suspected of having IBD within four weeks. Um, I, I think we're quite a way off that, um, and I think we need to get better at it. Uh, and I also would argue that in the longer term, we want to be able to see patients sooner than that. I think if someone's got you know new onset IBD, you don't want to be waiting for a month before you see that that person. And then have to wait for investigations and then treat them. So yes, we want to be trying to get pay people in faster. Um, in our local area, we have um, a, a, a pathway, a, a pathway that that allows us to to um, receive referrals from GPs urgently, so we can try and fit patients in within two to four weeks. Uh, and that that's our aim is to try and get patients in that that quickly. And who do you think needs to be seen more urgently than someone else? And um, you know, who, who would you see in primary care and think, right, I'll, I'll need to pick up the phone for them. Um, but for this person, I could just make the referral. Uh, you know, what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that can be very difficult. I mean, I think one of the things to do is always give us as much information as you can so that if you are referring someone by letter, we can make a judgment as to whether that patient needs to be seen faster or could be seen more routinely. Again, that's about duration of symptoms, severity of symptoms, is there weight loss associated with this? How many times a day is someone going to the toilet? You know, is there, um, is there bleeding there more or less than half the time? Those kind of things are really helpful for us to make some sort of judgment around potential disease activity. I think if you're worried though, always contact someone for advice. There are IBD nurses in all the hospitals around the country who are happy to help. There should be consultants available to be able to speak to um, for advice if you're worried about a patient. Um, and I think if in doubt, the patient needs to be in a place of safety, and that's the hospital. We're, we're, we're here to, to see people on the medical take. Of course, we want to try and keep our patients out of hospital as much as possible, but it is a place of safety. So the sorts of things that we, um, you know, we would admit an established um, uh, patient uh, with a diagnosis of, of colitis, for example, in the hospital would be if they're 
systemically unwell? Are they tachycardic? Have they got a temperature? You know, are they um, passing more than six bloody stools per day? You know, have they got particularly high CRP? Those kind of things to, to, to think about. Um, but if in doubt, if you're worried, please reach out. There should be a consultant, a registrar or an IBD nurse available in all the hospitals around the country for advice. That's really helpful. Um, I'm just thinking about a recent episode where one of my colleagues was quite concerned about someone and because of my gastroenterology interest, they asked me to give them some advice on, on what to do. So I, I, saw, I spoke to the patient and um, they did have a very high calprotectin and they'd been referred and they'd been told there was quite a long wait. Um, and it did sound, there were quite a few markers like we talked about from the beginning for, for possible inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and so actually I just, I, I emailed our IBD nurse specialists and they replied within 24 hours to say, yeah, look, happy with that we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for the referral and we'll try and get that upgraded for you and those sorts of two-way communications are really helpful um obviously this person didn't need immediate admission but i think we need to use some of the actually i imagine what's going to happen now is any ibd nurses who are listening are probably burying their head their, their heads in their hands <laughs> but but i think we have to use these routes to to do the best for our patients i think and um as you said communication uh, you, you know, if you're worried, pick up the phone. I think I think that's that's pretty good. Definitely, yeah. absolutely. And advice and guidance is such a, mm -hmm. a you know a, a routine part of our jobs now, and um, I think increasingly so, and will continue to become increasingly so. And the IBD nurses want to help the patients; they're there for them, and it's such a uh, an important relationship for the patients. So, you know, that's the take home message: if in if you're worried and if in doubt, contact someone. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, we're going to move now on to flare management, which is sort of the second part of what we we're going to cover. Um, as I said, I'm going to do another episode after this one where, where we'll talk about flare management using the um, RCGP and BSG flare pathways, which you can find on the IBD toolkit. Uh, and I will put a link to that on this episode so that people can have a look at that. So we will go into that in a lot more detail, but I just wanted to sort of get your opinion on kind of general advice around flare management, what you would advise that we do, just, just your take on it really. Yeah, sure. So this is this is where the individual plan has to come in and, and it's complicated. So the, the field of IBD therapies has increased hugely in the last 10 years. And so again, if you're worried, contact us. All the patients that we see, in, and again, hospitals around the country should have, um, contact numbers or email addresses for flare lines for IBD nurse specialists to, to help them. But of course, patients also have huge faith in their GPs and often you will be the, the people that they, they contact. So I guess some tips. Um, if someone has proctitis, because that's a very common um, uh, presentation to primary care. So this is where the inflammation in ulcerative colitis is limited to less than 20 centimetres of the rectum. Um, treatment for this is often with suppositories. So we would recommend the use of uh, a one gram mesalazine suppository at night. Um, if there's an incomplete response to that, um, we tend to use uh, oral 5-ASAs. Um, so mesalazine again, tend to use a dose of 2.4 grams daily. Um, that can be increased up to 4.8 grams daily in people who aren't responding and then stepping up to, to oral steroids. If someone's really unwell though, again, uh, we would commonly use uh, a course of, of, of oral prednisolone to try and make the proctitis better. Uh, and we would not stop GPs from doing that. But when that happens, we want to know that the patient started steroids. Increasingly so, a course of steroids is an indicator to us that we need to be thinking about escalating therapy, um, using steroid sparing agents. 
and so where you do start a course of steroids we would definitely want to to, to know about that um with more extensive colitis um i think again it's still important to realize that um 5-ASA, so mesalazine, uh, are a really useful medication. So make sure that someone uh, is taking their 5-ASA, their a dose of 2.4 grams or, or more per day. Again, we can add in uh, rectal therapies in the form of suppositories or, or mesalazine enemas here. There's some very helpful data that suggests that the addition of rectal therapies, even in someone with pan-colonic inflammation, um, is still uh, very, very useful. Make sure you don't miss um, another cause of inflammation as well. So we know that people with IBD are more at risk of um, picking up infective um, uh, uh, agents. So C. diff, even in the absence of antibiotics, uh, is possible in IBD. So we definitely want to see a C. diff toxin screen and a stool culture. Make sure this isn't Campylobacter, for example, um, because of uh, changes in the immune system within the intestine, changes in epithelial barrier function, and um, patients with IBD are more at risk of picking up infective types of colitis. So, so make sure uh, you don't miss that too. Uh, and that's where calprotectin can be helpful also. So if someone with IBD is having increased symptoms and you're not sure whether this is a flare or not, that's where calprotectin can be helpful also. And do you think we should do the calprotectin when we first see them and then wait for the result? Um, no, I think I think if someone's unwell, you want to try and modify their therapy to make them better, uh, particularly um, particularly as we know that not all stool samples get returned. So, you know, you send a patient away from clinic with a, a stool pot that doesn't necessarily translate to calprotectin coming back, certainly doesn't translate to calprotectin coming back within a few days for many patients. So if there are easy things that you can do um, to try and, uh, you know, improve their, their symptoms straight away, uh, then please, please do. But also, it's really um, useful if you know uh, the contact details for your local IBD advice lines and uh, and either contact them yourselves or ask the, the, the patients to get in contact with us so we can try and optimise their therapies. One of the things we're aiming for for the future is for patients to have a flare plan. So the idea being that patients on a particular therapy and we have a plan established ahead of time to know what we're going to do if and when a flare comes along so that patients are aware of the therapy that they're going to be prescribed, um, that we're aware of it, and therefore it happens faster. I think flare plans sound like a really good idea. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, is there any talk about patients being able to monitor their own fecal calprotectin at home? Yeah, so this is a really interesting um, innovation and it, it is available. It's not widely available yet. Um, it, it is expensive, requires technology, but yes, in theory, um, using um, home collection devices and probes and uh, smartphone technology, um, you can uh, home test for, for calprotectin uh, to monitor disease activity over time. Um, and, you know, gazing into the future, I, I think it's likely we'll be in a situation where that will be increasingly used. Um, and I hope also that will go hand in hand with the use of apps to be able to um, allow patients to monitor the symptoms over time, but also for us to see those symptoms when a patient comes to clinic. It would be great to talk to a patient more about how their disease is affecting their life, because I've already seen on the screen how many times they're going to the, the toilet before they come into the room, rather than having to go through that part of the history. So we can really make a personalized care plan um, for a, a patient. 
Sounds really exciting. I think that'll be that'll be a big game changer. I think the patient will come to us and say, "Well, look, I, my calprotectin's gone up. I think uh, I think I'm quite active, and it might sort of change the dynamic fully, wouldn't it?" So it'd be quite interesting. Absolutely. Um, so moving on from management of flares to kind of longer term management of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, as we said before, it's a lifelong condition. Um, does every patient who's diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease need follow-up in secondary care? Not necessarily. So I think we have um, good evidence that patients, going back to proctitis again, where the disease um, is really um, uh, confined to the, the, the distal rectum, to the rectum itself, um, that those patients um, do not necessarily progress to having more extensive disease over time um, and can potentially be um, discharged and managed through primary care. Um, there obviously has to be consideration to whether the patient um, needs to come back to hospital for surveillance procedures in the future or for checkups at any point. And there needs to be um, individualized pathways locally to be able to refer patients back in. But I think that is a, a good example of where primary care management long term uh, can be undertaken. I think there's, uh, and it's hard to know for sure, but I think there's likely to be changes in the way we structure care in the future so that we have, I hope, much more joined up methods of, of managing patients between primary and secondary care, better communication, faster communications, IT will definitely help us in this respect. Um, and I can see um, uh, very likely situations in the future where we rely much more on patient-initiated follow-up um, so that patients come to see us when they need us rather than necessarily coming to see us every four, eight, 12 months or every two years or however, however long the particular consultant tends to see their patients. The key things, though, are that we have to make sure that patients are followed up safely. Uh, and this is where shared care agreements, for example, when it comes to the use of immunosuppression, um, can be very, very helpful uh, in making sure that everybody's on board, the patient's engaged and aware of their, their follow-up and it's done carefully between primary and secondary care. And what about things like cancer surveillance? Um, with patients with inflammatory bowel disease, how often do they need to have surveillance for cancer? Because I'm aware that they're at higher risk of colorectal cancer. Yeah, so some patients uh, may be at higher risk. The, the, the risk of colorectal cancer over time in colonic disease is related to the duration of time that someone's had inflammation for, the severity of that inflammation over time and the, the length of bowel that, that's affected in general. Um, we tend to start surveillance uh, after eight years now um, uh, of having uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And that's the stage where we tend to undertake a, a colonoscopy, assess how much of the, the colon's affected, um, whether there's any disease activity. And we're looking in those circumstances, not necessarily for cancer itself, but looking for um, areas which we may be more concerned about becoming cancer uh, in the future. So, so for precancerous dysplastic changes, for example. Uh, and the current um, uh, pathways will then, depending on, the, on what you find, will then suggest um, a, a further procedure uh, five years, three years, or, or one year later, depending on the assessment that you make and any other comorbid uh, factors. Okay, thanks for that. That's really helpful. So. Just coming to the end now, Chris, and I wanted to maybe have a bit of a discussion and ask you a bit about how you feel that, I mean, I think, I think on the whole, inflammatory bowel disease is, is managed pretty well between primary and secondary care. We have a fantastic link with the IBD nurse specialists. Um, it's certainly in the area where I work, we get very useful letters that 
outline where the patient's disease is. Um, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about how we might be able to work better between primary and secondary care for our patients with IBD. Yeah, um, I think it's all about joined up working and good communication between primary and secondary care. I, I think we you've highlighted the role of the, the nurse specialist for, for IBD patients. It's an extremely important relationship which patients hold um, uh, very dearly and as is the relationship with the GP. Um, and so I think the more we can we can share information to try and join up that working, the better. I think shared care is a great thing where we can, you know, medications can be prescribed close to home, monitored close to home, but with the input and security of having secondary care also overseeing um, the monitoring process is really important. Um, and I think making sure that there's rapid communication between primary and secondary care to manage flares is really important. We talked before about, you know, some simple um, management principles in, in ulcerative colitis it's much more complicated in Crohn's disease. I think managing Crohn's disease in primary care is really difficult. And I think often that's because it's a more um, a complex disease by its nature. And the patients themselves are more likely to be on immunosuppression, which may mean the interpretation of symptoms can be difficult. We may be less or more likely to think about certain investigations or the use of one drug over another. Um, uh, again, reach out to us you know, we want to, to to talk more about those patients to make sure that they they have a plan. But this this concept of flare plans and personalised care plans, I think, um, will become much more commonplace in in the future to aid that process. Brilliant. Yeah, I I totally agree. Finally, Chris, do you have any final sort of key messages you'd like to to tell our GP listeners to finish off this episode? Just, uh, you know, thank you for all you do to, to identify the patients, to refer them in a, in a timely way uh, and to co-manage patients. I think that the pandemic has allowed us to transform secondary care uh, and I obviously largely primary care as well. And I hope that some of these innovations, particularly digital innovations, will allow us to work in a more joined up way in the future to, to best support our patients. So I'm looking forward to seeing how healthcare changes in the next 10 years. There's um, you know, uh, real pressure on the system at the moment, but I hope uh, at the end of all this, we'll have a, a better system for our patients. On that optimistic, but hopefully very you know realistic note, I'm gonna draw the episode to a close. Um, but Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, and thank you for having me, Charlie. No problem. And, and thank you so much to all our listeners for, for, for listening to this today. Hopefully you found that stimulating. I found it really interesting talking to Chris. He's got so many interesting insights and he's doing so many interesting things. I'll have to get him back on the podcast to talk about the microbiome, I'm sure, at a later date. But, um, but thank you all very much for listening and thank you, Chris. Thank you.